friend is here. Oh yeah. reports 
zu freuen, ich very simple one. This captain, when this guy, patient, this was a child patient, of Freud, he had 10 years only, and he dreamt compulsively a couple of times about, how do you call it, in German it is Kessier, it's a beetle, bug, a small bug running around and the guy is trying to catch it. Now, what a Jungian would have done here? Look to all possible associations, bug, is it racist metaphor? For example, if some of you maybe know it, uh, I think that in South Africa, in apartheid, the white white term for blacks was kefir. No? And even now a black guy from South Africa told it to me. I will tell it to you because I think it's more it reflects more the stupidity of the white man, you know. The joke is uh, the South African white guy comes to Europe and sees five workers, white, working on something, doesn't matter. And he said, how can you, how can you spend in such a stupid, inefficient way workforce, workforce here? Give me ten kefirs and I will do it alone. You know, racist joke, but uh, this is the only elegant aspect that I like in South Africa, uh, apartheid South Africa, that they at least had the decency to make jokes on themselves. Otherwise, again, if you want to learn something about real South Africa, that's what I advise you to read. Uh, official apartheid documents. Ideological, no? Here, there, you can see what ideological manipulation is. Me, with my bad taste, I almost threw up. Because, you know, okay, this it's of course pure bullshit, but how they try to convince themselves that they are not doing a bad thing, uh, uh, how did they justify the regime apartheid? Their point was not blacks are less or whatever, but pure hypocritical false, of course, multiculturalism, no? The idea was if we give to blacks all the rights, like to us, in one generation, their authentic original culture will be lost. Imagine, they will become vulgar, vulgar consumerists like us. <laughs> we come with those, all those pressures, and here they played another game. They were devils, the whites there. They always reminded the blacks that before even they were there, the blacks, the so-called, how, how would we call them? First generation aborigines, Cottentot, Bushman, were already there. So, this was another disgusting white strategy, to portray them as agents who defend black minorities against the black majority. But my point is, okay, now they have the whole orgasmic ecstasy of compassion. What about those precious spiritual exercises of Hottentot and Bushman, and then they even went, white ideologies, into some kind of a fake, uh, 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 fake self-humiliation, like we live in the Western way, we are so vulgar consumerist, we just think about productivity, exploit, isn't it that in a ritual performed by a simple Bushman priest, there is more profound wisdom there than in... I explode when I hear this. 
This is why I'm always suspicious. For me, it's always the ultimate racism. When white people in this wrong way celebrate other races, you know, this self-humiliation. Like, uh, it's interesting to read memoirs of British colonial officers in India. Ooh, they explode always the British are so... So, just, just when you see your Hindu saint, you see death inaccessible to us. This is why those that I really like become a friend, artists, some theorists from those non-white countries. I like them because most of them say, fuck our culture. No, okay, you make our culture and want to be more consumerist than you, you know. Like, maybe I already told you this story years ago, not this year, I'm sure. My best friends, uh, how do you call, uh, New Zealand artists, my best friends, why? You know, Maori, no? And although they were also racist there, one should at least admit one small thing to the white colonizers in New Zealand. They at least have the decency that if you have a little bit of aboriginal blood with you, it's not a handicap like this may hurt you. It's considered a necessary ingredient of the elite. Okay, it has its own racist logic, but maybe better than nothing. But I want to say that I met there some artists who first gave me all the bullshit. You know, like, uh, we speak with the woods, spirits dictate us what to paint, and so on. That was the official party line. Okay, then I met them for dinner, we began to talk like normal human beings, and I learned the truth. Yeah, it's true, but they had one agent in London, one in New York, which informed them what are the latest trends. <laughs> and then they made it sure that the spirits told them something that was like, that fitted the latest fashion, no? And I loved them. I don't think you can in any way say that they were uh, commercialized or whatever. That's how you do it. You have the right to proceed like that. Like, uh, maybe you know this story, but it's nice to give an example of what I'm aiming at. Watch that movie, listen, I'm not politically correct. When I see a third world movie and it's shit, I say, sorry, guys, I go to multiplex. I prefer Hollywood, not Buster. <laughs> but there is a very good movie. Did you see it? It's now over 10 years. I think it was made in around 2000. Uh, the Canadian Inuit movie, uh, uh, fast runner. It retells an old Inuit, okay, testimony, old terms, legend, two tribes uh, or two groups uh, uh, fighting each other, blah, blah. It was really, except some camera help, it was really done by Inuits. And what surprised me is how watchable the film is. I mean, you know, you don't have to, you can really so please take it, you can maybe download it. You don't have to play this game of feeling guilty, oh my god, I have to have compassion for Inuit. No, it's a good movie, simply not. And okay, that's my story, I'm sorry if you know it. Uh, uh, I read, I have a whole book, even a couple of books on this film, and I read there how a white journalist, stupid jerk who wanted to be politically correct, attacked the director of conceding too much to commercialization, to Hollywood interests. Why? Because he, this is a restaging of an ancient Inuit legend. And the, in the original legend, the two parts of the tribe or whatever, the enemies 
kill each other to the end. It's a catastrophe at the end. While in the film, they just threw out one bad guy, not even kill him, just exact him, excommunicate him, and then it's kind of a happy ending. And the stupid journalist accused the guy of, you know, succumbing to Hollywood commercialism, and again, maybe you know it, I'm sorry if you do, he got the answer of a lifetime, no? The guy told him, the director, who unfortunately died of cancer or whatever, a couple of months later, he told him, no, you are Western cultural imperialist here, because this, when you retell the story and change it uh, accordingly to present circumstances, precisely this is part of our tradition. Sticking to the original, you know, this fetishizing or oh, the original myth, this is a Western myth. We are all the time doing this. You know, the story is not a fixed, authentic original. You use it, you change it, turn around, whatever, put it. And I think, uh, so again, you see, this is how true racism, much more refined, refined works, precisely in this way. Okay, so, that I don't get lost, back to Jung, Freud, this example. Yes, I know where the association went, Kefir, the meanings. It's interesting that in East Germany, is some of you there, somebody told me that, and I like this as a metaphor that those in East Germany, ex DDR, who are still communist sympathizers, use the term Kefir, little as, you know, self-designation and so on. Okay, but my point is this one. Again, a Jungian would have looked at all possible mythic meanings, kefir, what does it stand for, you relate to kefir, uh, boy, does this mean fear, fear of animality, is kefir the symbol of his mother, father, whatever. You simply see a scene, a boy trying to catch a bug, a beetle, and you look for a deeper meaning. Freud's solution is totally different. It's a very simple one, but just you see the approach. When the session was over already, this patient, he mentioned so offhand, oh, by the way, I had a French, uh, when I was 10 years old, a French uh, governess which, on whom I had a crash. And then Freud immediately becoming attentive, asking what does she remember about this government, governess, and then the patient tells, oh, now I remember, and you know this, what you remember at the end, as an unimportant detail is always the most important thing. She often didn't know what to do and expressed herself in French, que faire, que faire, what to do. And that's the link. Kefir stands for que faire, what to do. Then you learn that the whole trauma is included in it, that this que faire, was on the one hand the boy had a crush on the French governess and remembers this of her second thing more directly Edipal the boy the guy already as a boy heard the rumor that his mother didn't it took her a long time to decide to marry the boy's father. She was she was oscillating like procrastinating like affair, what to do, no? But you see now the Freudian approach. You should totally put in brackets all this uh, fascinating presence of, of the image and then look you what deeper meaning. No, 
it doesn't matter. It's just this totally uh, superficial link which matters. The most famous example here is, and although he was not an orthodox Lacanian, but you can buy simply uh, Serge Leclerc, one of the first generation. He wrote a wonderful book translated 20, 30 years ago called Psychanalyse, to Psychoanalyze, where he gives another example, uh, again, very simple one. A guy, a patient of his, was dreaming all the time about being on a ship in uh, capital of Indonesia, whatever it was then, colony, I don't know, uh, Jakarta, uh, of arriving with a ship to the port of Jakarta. And you know what the analysis shows? Nothing with fascination with foreigners and so on, exotism. No, it's he really hated a guy that wasn't fully aware of it, who was his best friend. His name was Jack. And it's, uh, 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 in French, you say le porc de, which means Jack is a swine, you say le porc de Jack. Jack, that's swine. And then the dream translates into the port of Jakarta, Jack. <laughs> you see, uh, why is this important? Especially this first Freudian example, Kessian, Kefer. What I also like is that an image stands for a question. It's a question of desire. Kefer, what to do? You know, you must know this story. I don't know if this is true, this story, but the rumor is, here I say, you know, the, even if it's not true, it's well found. That, uh, uh, you know, the origin of the term kangaroo, the first stupid white explorers arrived there and asked natives, whatever, what's the animal, no? And uh, they answered uh, kangaroo, kangaroo. And they baptized it kangaroo. No. When they later learned, they learned that the, the or, uh, they just replied, like, what do you mean? We don't understand you. What do you mean? You know? And, and I think this is maybe the elementary procedure in a way of ideology. That you don't know what, and you obfuscate this enigma through an object. Like, kangaroo, I don't know what, fuck you, you have here an object. You stupid kangaroo or what, you know? It's, uh, uh, it's exactly the same you remember, was it yes, uh, yesterday, yes, when I took the example of anti-Semitism. You have basically just all these questions, kefer, what to do, ordinary German in 1930-29. I don't find my way what is happening, a question, and like, you know, uh, as they perceived it, small bourgeois, moral decay, uh, economic crisis, whatever, and you get the Jew as an object, as an answer. And again, the first, immediately, the first step of critique of ideology to see the question embodied in this answer. Yes. Yeah, my question was, uh, you, in your book, uh, The sub Sublime Center of the Ideology. Uh, Did you say, I like this, Sublime Center? Yeah, that's what, I, sorry, yeah, object. object. For this, in my Stalinist universe, you know, maybe not Gulag, but like two years of free education. Right? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry, I was, I was thinking topology, so. Sorry? I was thinking topologically, it's kind ah. of center of the thori, but, but that's why. I'll come to this later. Yeah, yeah but, but my question, uh, 
was in relation to your uh, uh, mentioning of 30s Germany. You say there that it's Chevoy, it's the graph of desire, Lacanian yes, structuralist yes, yes, graph yes. of desire, and kind of what do you want from me is the question then, right? But that, this is completely the, the, the line of desire that's asking this question, right? The, yes, line, the material. Things get incredibly complicated in the sense of the question, whose question, if you know this, then you probably also know that for Lacan, and here another half Lacanian, Jean Laplanche, wrote, okay, he didn't write it, some of his best essays are collected in a book that I also advise you, if you want, Essays on Otherness, I think, where he developed in a wonderful way this idea of enigmatic signifier and so on, which I think really allows you to understand what does psychoanalysis mean with, with fantasy and with lost object of desire. Let me repeat the old line because it's important. The, according to common sense, even some wrong reading of Lacan, desire is uh, the object of desire, the true object is incestuous, it's forever lost, so there is forever law, you know, all this turning of Lacan into some kind of a stupid negative theological church, you know, like, uh, oh, the object is always lost, we just get metonymic replacements, we never get the thing itself totally wrong. First, and the second misunderstanding that uh, 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 that Yes, in this sense that the object of desire is lost, uh, this, all this almost theology of lack in Lacan, the fundamental fact is lack and so on. Ah, but Lacan nonetheless is not an idiot. You know what he knows very well? That it is lack, but at the same time excess. In the sense of, let's say, enjoyment. The problem is not only that the true incestuous enjoyment is inaccessible, you think you have it, but it's never there, always something else. A much more interesting problem is that not only you cannot get enjoyment, but you also cannot get rid of it. The more you try to get rid of it, the more it returns in the guise of a symptom or whatever, and so on and so on. So, you know, that's the finesse of Lacan. Lacanian real is not some big absence. It's even more something you cannot ever get rid of. You know, the classical example here would be, which I always repeat, look at uh, that. You find here, incidentally, although I have theoretical disagreements with her, you can find here some nice lines in what I argue is the best book by Judith Butler. I think she made a mistake with messing with all this stupid gender studies stuff. She <laughs> <laughs> stuck with Hegel studies, if you ask me. Her first book, I think, so, Subjects of Desire, it's a very good reading of Hegel. And then her most Hegelian work, of her later books, it appears modest, it's just a collection of essays, but it's really good, The Psychic Life of Power. And there uh, she develops whatever, how, this would be the best formula of what I'm trying to develop. The prohibition of desire, always turns into a desire for prohibition, which means what? Let's say you have something what you experience as, as a prohibited 
unacceptable object of desire. Okay, so if you are a normal obsessional, like I am, if you are not totally idiot, this must be clear for you in like this. If there never was an obsession of neurotic, it's me. Okay, so it's, uh, although my good friend, Alain Badiou, did, you see, this is what friends do to you. At one talk, and there were 200 people, when I made this keep joke at myself, obsessional, Badiou, the great Badiou, he stood up, interrupted me, and said, no, you are wrong, you are hysterical. And then, it was so crazy, you know, people thought we are crazy for... Ten minutes we debated my clinic, you know, like what am I? Uh, but you know, I used it, I think, in uh, that uh, which book, uh, In Defense of the Lost Causes, or where, that dedication. You know, if people ask me what is true friendship, I will repeat the story, and some of you know it. That's absolute friendship, what he did to me. It was a group like this, I was giving a talk. Before that, he asked me to lend him my phone. Because I had through some obscure corruption friends in Slovenia who were members of the board of some cell phone company. Yeah, it's nice to do have this. I got a phone totally anonymous, which were everywhere for free and so on. So, okay. So, while I was giving a talk, a phone rang. Somebody called, but you, he had it. And he said yes, and then not only he didn't stand up and leave, but he turned to me when I was giving a talk and told me, Slavo, please, could you talk a little bit? <laughs> I said, either the guy is total enemy or your absolute best friend. <laughs> the guy who does something like this. Okay, but uh, let's go back to this stuff where we were, yes. So again, this is the first paradox of, of jouissance, excessive enjoyment. Again, back to Judith Butler. <coughs> and, you know, this is the logic. You are obsessional and neurotic, you establish a set of rituals to keep at the distance the enjoyment that you try to, uh, that you find unacceptable. But what happens then, every obsession, uh, that these very rituals become invested by the center of the enjoyment. You start to enjoy the rituals. So, you know, this is the ABC of also what Lacan means by uh, enjoyment as real. It's precisely this combination of, this is maybe the best definition of the real, that it's impossible, but at the same time unavoidable, unavoidable, necessary. You can get it, but you can get rid of it. And I think this second part is missed a little bit by Gilles Deleuze's critique of Lacan, Deleuze emphasizes too much this negative theological aspect of Lacan. Ooh, Edipus, prohibition, everything is prohibited, it's forever lost. No, it's not lost, but let's go on. So again, the first, what you find in Laplanche is another point, is that the lost object of desire is not out there, it's not Oh, I don't know what I want. The ultimate lost object of desire is the desiring subject itself. That's why for Lacan, when he analyzes the hysterical structure and defines femininity as hysterical in its structure, Lacan's point is profoundly feminist here. The point is that, uh, uh, you know, the hysterical question 
is not what do I really want, but what am I for others as an object? What do others want from me? You know, this difficult position of I see that others project, expect something into me, from me, but what is this? What am I for the others? And for Lacan, uh, for Lacan, the ultimate question of desire is this one. It's not this stupid terminology, do I really want that, don't I want something? No, it's what am I? Desire is in this sense originally intersubjective. That the original lost object is me, myself. And for Lacan, subjectivity is absolutely correlative with me being lost object for myself. Which is why, and if anything, for Lacan, male subjectivity is a compromise to, to give you the most succinct elementary definition of male subjectivity for Lacan is that its structure is perverse. Perversion is for Lacan precisely that you avoid this terrible gap of what for an object I am and you assume that you are an object instrument. You know, because as Lacan puts it nicely, uh, Hysterical subjects, inclusive obsessional neurotics, who are also, you should always bear in mind this, we don't have neurosis divided into hysteria and obsessional neurotics. As Freud already put it nicely, obsessional neurotic is a, how do you call it, argo, uh, some language, uh, a dialect, I think Freud says, a dialect of hysteria. So there, the problem is the problem of the question. Why? Perverts, they don't raise questions, they have an answer. They know what's the best for the other. They are instruments of the other's desire. In this sense, I claim in my books that Stalinism, Stalinism is the totalitarian version of communism, has the structure of perversion. Not in the sense of oh, what horrible things they were doing, although they were well doing these things immediately, but in the more elementary sense of the basic conviction of a Stalinist communist is, you know, they even use this term, we communists are objects instrument of historical will. We know where history goes and we are instruments to realize, uh, to realize that will. Which is why, again, Lacan is far from dismissing uh, uh, hysterical subjectivity. The first hint you get here is that for Lacan, in contrast to the standard metaphysics, which claims men are subjects, women are objects, for Lacan, if you want to put it in sex terms, subjectivity is as such feminine. And masculine subjectivity always involves a, mi a minimum of escape of the, from the obfuscation of the abyss of subjectivity. Which is why, for Lacan also, uh, uh, two further political and theoretical, one political, one theoretical co consequence from here, uh, 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 for Lacan, for example, what's the status of science? Science as a discourse. It's not what Lacan calls university discourse. University discourse is the institutionalization. Science, but science in its inventive moment, as it were, in its invention, is hysterical. 
First, second point, politically, uh, you know, in the 60s, when I was very, very young and later, all that bullshit, 68 uh, revolution, it, is, it was fashionable, but I think it was a deeply anti-feminist trend. It was fashionable to oppose hysterics and perverts, praising the perverts. The idea is that hysterical subject just provokes the master, you know. You provoke him, but at the same time, in this provocation, there is a call, but I want even a stronger master, and so on, like that. Hysterics go only halfway, while perverts openly do it. We don't have time to go into it now, just beware that already Freud knew a perfect answer to this. When he says that far from being the most open, like, you know, the idea, this is the simplistic idea, even Freud wrongly formulates it one, when he says, Perverts do all that hysterics only dream about doing. No, Lacoque at the same time says, this is so important for clinics, that nowhere is the unconscious more obfuscated, inaccessible than in perversion. So perversion is for Lacan, uh, uh, even if you do all the horrible things, whatever perverts do, it's repression at its most uh, that is most uh, radical. So, Laplanche, ah, not you, I didn't lose my thread, I somehow got it Laplanche formulates in a nice way what's the birth of subjectivity. How does a small child subjectivize itself? His point is precisely to put it simply this way that already very early, you as a small child, you not only notice that you are desired in all ways, including of hatred by the others, your immediate environment, mother, father, sister, brothers, whatever, but uh, that they, you are something for them, but you don't know what you are for them. You know this pressure of the small child, my God, why is my mommy caressing me so much? Why is father, my father casting this glance at me? You feel that they want something from me, but what? What am I for them? That's the origin of desire for Lacan. The origin is not I want that, whatever the stupidities are, mother's milk or whatever. No, the origin is what am I for the other's desire? And that's the beauty of Laplanche. He develops very nicely how the point is not that parents know in themselves what they want, but just the child doesn't know it. The point is that the child, even very young one, notices from the way how parents or others treat him that they themselves don't know what they want from him. In this sense, he feels this boy in Italian. This is a long story, why not use it in Italian? He refers to some well-known diabolical story where the guy meets the devil or the opposite and the devil says in Italian, che boy, what do you want and so on. And uh, uh, this here is a long story, even theologically it's interesting, because I have a running conflict for years with my Jewish friends, especially Eric Sentner and Ken Reinhardt, who try to rehabilitate Judaism at this level. They claim that the greatness of Jewish experience is that God remains an object of anxiety, in the sense that this cap boy 
what do you want of the divine other remains open. And that Christianity obfuscates this by love. The gap, a bit of anxiety is no longer here. We know God loves us. Okay, we're not going to this now, just to tell you, I think we as faithful Christians can answer to this. No, it's Christ that loves us. And it's rather a fiasco. Christ dies on the cross because, you know, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, he himself doesn't know what God the Father wants. I mean, the only consistent reading of Christianity for me is some element of Gnosticism. I don't accept Gnosticism because you know what's the basic Gnostic theory, that the God which, who created the world, who said, let it be light, no, is the devil himself. Uh, and then you have this wonderful reading of Christ's sacrifice, that Christ was sacrificed to us humans, that the sacrifice of Christ is a kind of a divine excuse to us. Sorry, humanity, I screwed it up, I made a terrible world, I give you as a gift. It's almost like, you know, Yakuza, the Japanese monsters. Now, I don't know if this is Hollywood or not, but I spoke with some Japanese friends, they claim that it also is some Japanese movie, Yakuza do this. <laughs> Namely what? That there, uh, if you offend someone who you really respect, the thing to do is to cut off one of your fingers and give it to him as a present. As sincere apology. And again, the idea is this is what uh, this is what Jesus Christ was a Yakuza monster who screwed it up and get whatever. So again, uh, uh, what is so important and now you can also see the, for psychoanalysis the most elementary function of fantasy. Fantasy is simply an answer to this cowboy. What do you want? Fantasy is an answer. In fantasy, you learn what the other wants from you. This is the basic function of fantasy. To clarify, of course, in a proto-ideological way, what the other wants from you. Let's not get lost. Do it quickly. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I just wanted to ask in terms of uh, the discourse of uh, hysteric and, and pervert. So the analyst's uh, uh, discourse in this case would be to position oneself in the position of, of this questioning hysteric? No, it would be uh, to position oneself at the foundation no, 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 the of... the analyst, the idea is this one, to put it very simply. The analyst precisely embodies this cowboy itself. The, the function of the analyst is to provoke totally the analyzant, the patient, in this sense, in the discourse of the analysis, and the analyst, you remember, uh, the analyst occupies the place of object, object in the sense of serpentine, like this pure, which is why the good analyst never tells you what you want or you even shouldn't be too good to the patient because you know where you should, if you are interested in Freud, it must still be available. I have an old edition 30 years ago in Bengals, Muriel Gardiner. She was quite an interesting woman, very intelligent. Her other name is Vanessa Redgrave. I'm not kidding. Did you see that movie, it's too old, Julia? Where she figures, Vanessa Redgrave, she's basically Muriel Gardiner. She was an American, very honest, got caught into anti-Nazi resistance later, but she was very close to Freud, and after 
Freud dropped him, him whom Boltzmann, the Prussian, anticipation, he, Muriel Gardiner, took over his analysis. And basically, let's be frank, she cured him. And she, in a very nice way, located one of Freud's faithful errors. Uh, uh, Boltzmann was, uh, from, came from a rich Russian family, and uh, when the World War I ended, October Revolution and so on, of course, his family was lost, no money, he was all of a sudden poor. And Freud, because he was a good, decent man, he helped him financially while continuing analysis. It was a beautiful gesture from humanitarian standpoint. It was a mega mistake from the clinical point because Wolfman was, as Lacan says somewhere, the first pure borderline patient, which means on the edge of psychosis, paranoia, and typically, this is why Freud's help was a mistake. It triggered paranoia. Like, why is Freud doing this? What's his plot? Why is Freud helping me? You know, Freud, instead of leaving his own desire, analyst totally impenetrable blank, and in this sense, a projection screen onto which to true transference, the patient can confront his desire. Freud provided the crucial element for a, for a paranoiac construction. No, you need, I mean this in a loving way, a feminine bitch like Muriel Gardiner, who didn't play this game, to, to cure him, really. And it was incredible. He was totally cured. This was a mythic event. An American soldier I read in this story was walking around Vienna and he saw some guy started to talk with him. The guy spoke German with a Russian accent. The miracle was that this American soldier was an officer who knew about psychoanalysis. And imagine the shock. He learned, he knew Wolfman as a mythical example from the most famous. This was Wolfman, you know, you walked in 46 along Vienna and he did it quite well, even as an old man, he married again. In other words, you may hear, hear all these rumors how psychoanalysis doesn't really work as clinic. Well, here at least it worked very, it worked very well. But again, you see my point, and uh, my good friend Nader Dola, who will be here, a week from now, Monday more, he made the same mistake in Ljubljana. I don't know if you know this story, already mentioned it years ago. Some 20 years ago, there was a young guy in Slovenia who was obviously more or less a psychotic, uh, gay, at the same time, I will see why this is important, I will tell you immediately, and he came to me once at my institute, which was, it was summer, windows were open on the fourth floor, of a building in downtown center of Ljubljana, and he told me, I want to go to analysis with you. I know what you are trying, you and Laden Dolar. You are trying to control me and to force me to castrate myself, whatever. No? I think I did the right thing, although it was a risky thing. I told the guy, it's much worse than you think. <laughs> I don't care. And then I pointed the open window and said, look, because at that point, when he caught me, I was eating a sandwich. <laughs> if you throw yourself out of the window, I will not even stop eating my sandwich. <laughs> it worked. It was a risky move, but it worked. The guy looked at me, oh, it doesn't function, thanks, and left. 
Mladen dolar, hartli liberal emotionally, politically, denk je bent u mladen dolar met de geen probleem. Mladen dolar tried to help him. No, it's not like this. You know the result? That for two, three weeks, this guy that was serially, almost every day, going to the police, uh, 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 denouncing their Mladen for murder attempt. That Mladen wants to beat him, and he all made fun of Mladen, because he learned this, you know. This guy even dressed about a detailed way how that Mladen will seduce him, then Adergo fucked him into the ass, and while fucking him, he will strangle him, and so on. Poor But you see that? No, I don't him telling you be evil, be good, my God, I'm a sentimentalist. That's why I never would be able to be an analyst. One thing is, I would be too sentimental. And the second reason, you probably guessed it. Be sincere. Can you imagine me listening to someone in Belgium? Okay, let's go back. So, uh, I'm so sorry, I don't have time to do that because it would be... What, maybe we can do it, okay, on... on uh, next Monday, if you want, you know, these four discourses is maybe Lacan at his best. It's a simple four formulas, and it's so productive in the sense that it really works as a position. But I shouldn't uh, drop, I shouldn't uh, lose too much time here. Okay, this was all the introductory <coughs> association about uh, the enigma of the other, and so on, and so on. So, uh, yes, but, uh, so again, but at the end I did arrive at God. God as uh, the ultimate affair, what do you want? And I think all truly radical religion does here one thing which is to be done. Transposes the enigma of what God wants from us onto God himself. God himself doesn't know it. You know, you have all this wonderful, uh, uh, I think that uh, theological points which arise when, and here for me, serious theology begins. And this is where I claim uh, German idealist Schelling Hegel, but also already beginning with Meister Eckhart and German mystics, were on the right track. You know, what's their basic premise? It's that it's not just that uh, religion is historical in the sense that, it, but it's that uh, the development of religion is immanent to God himself. Our discovering God is also an event of God himself coming to terms with himself. That's the, that's the formula. So, in other words, it is absolutely crucial to apply here that wonderful formula of Hegel, you must know it, apropos ancient Greeks, you know where uh, Sphinx, Sphinx, we don't know what, Sphinx, an enigma, and Hegel says it beautifully that the enigmas of ancient Greeks, like Sphinx for us, were also enigmas, mysteries for the Greeks, them, for the ancient, sorry, Egyptians, Egyptians themselves, so that you know, that's the basic operation. Your enigma, it's not that we have some impenetrable divinity which is beyond enigmatic for us, but 
the enigma of the other is the enigma for the other himself. And we will come to this today. Incidentally, maybe we can even go there right now, because I don't want to talk too much about it uh, uh, later. Uh, sorry, yes, I have it here. Namely, this idea. Yes? Well, I had a question about the, the ancient Egyptians. Is it possible that there was a previous race like the Hottentots in Egypt, where the Sphinx was maybe less of a mystery or had a different cultural reference? It's possible, although, you know, my problem is always this one. <coughs> I think that when you have a new religion, the mystery is not what was before, but the true mystery is the other, like, for example, uh, this is what my beloved theologist Chesterton likes to repeat, that uh, if we talk about the passage from apes to humans, the mysterious point is not we cannot know what apes really were. The mysterious point is what we humans are, not once, once we are already established as humans, but what we are in the eyes of the apes, as it were. Kierkegaard would have called this the universal in becoming. And here everything depends on this. For example, another example, if you know a little bit of the theory, it was fashionable following Louis Althusser to emphasize how subject, this is Louis Althusser's notion of subject, subject is ideological in its very constitution. Subject is an element of ideological misrecognition. Let's, the idea is maybe this one. You have an overdetermined process without subject, and in subjectivity as self-awareness, you, as a subject, misperceive yourself as an agent. Like, as if you are the agent, spontaneous origin of it all, and you obfuscate this decentered process which generates you, and so on and so on. But from the Lacanian point, yes, it's true that this subjectivity as origin of itself, spontaneous creativity, is an illusion. But it doesn't obfuscate some pre-subjective process. It obfuscates subjectivity itself as cut, as a cut, as a gap, as, you know, so that uh, a new, or that would be my reading of Christianity. There is a secret in Christianity, but it's not some stupid pagan tradition which survives. It's the founding gesture, the horror of the founding gesture of Christianity itself. That's why I like to quote it, I think I did it here on the first time, for the hundredth time. You know when Napoleon crowned himself, took the crown, Napoleon organized his crowning as an emperor in the presence of the Pope. And when the Pope was approaching him with the crown, Napoleon simply took the crown from the Pope's hand and put it on himself. And the Pope, the Pope gave him a wonderful answer, which was, Sire, Pope to Napoleon, I know what you want to do. You want to destroy Christianity. Believe me, you will not succeed. We, the Church, are trying to do this for 2,000 years. <laughs> you know, this idea that the excess that, for example, monotheism, and this is what Freud was searching for in his Moses and monotheism. 
The secret is not some pagan secret from before. We can play these games, they are easy to be. How, you know, all the motives were already before, like, I don't know, uh, uh, Book of Job, you have it before, reincarnation. Yes, but what is obfuscated in Judaism for Freud is the, as it were, original constitutive gesture of monotheism itself. It's its own dark, uh, it's its own dark uh, obverse. Nonetheless, so that, I am, sorry, yeah, my point was this one, that uh, God himself doesn't know what he wants, so then that the process of our human understanding of God is part of the history of God himself. In other words, it's not only that we need God, God needs us to become fully God. That's the deepest, not even necessarily Gnostic uh, thought. So, maybe I, I spoke about this a year ago, but with a different twist, I want just to go a little bit into it. And since there is a guy here who pretends to know Benjamin, maybe he mentioned it, no? Uh, uh, I will mention Benjamin uh, a little bit. Incidentally, the fate of Benjamin shows, don't you think, that there is some justice in the world. Justice in the sense that theoreticians who survive deserve to survive. Maybe I remember when I was very young, 60s, and you know, critical theory, critical school, and all of them were popular at that point. Herbert Marcuse, Horkheimer, blah, blah. Now, basically, two survived. Adorno and Walter Benjamin. And I think the right guys survived. I think they, they were by far the only ones who deserved to survive. Okay, Benjamin. You know that when Benjamin speaks about translation, he uses the well-known Lurianic. Luria was a guy who lived in the 16th century, somewhere central Europe, Poland, uh, and has a wonderful theological notion of creation of the world. And his teachings are called, after Luria, Lurianic Kabbalah. The basic metaphor of Luria is broken vessel. I will simplify to the utmost. At the beginning we have I'm soft, creator, energy, whatever. It is infinite, but formless, without purpose, pure, stupid energy. Now this I'm soft, the primordial, not even creator, creative energy, resolved to create something with form and purpose, human beings, to understand itself, not even himself. Uh, and here already an ingenious gesture happens. I think it's such a right insight which can even be translated, I admit, in a very suspicious way, but nonetheless into modern physics, namely, <coughs> His idea, for me here, serious theology begins. The idea is that God did not simply create the world out of nothing. He first had to create nothingness itself. The idea is that this formless energy had to, and he uses this crucial uh, mystical term, which stands for what German idealism calls Zusammenziehung, contraction to contract itself into the punctuality of the subject so that all this chaotic mess is reduced to nothing, void, 
and this nothing is then the space for creation. Okay, where do things get of interest here? The, the idea is then that after creating material, that this material reality that God then creates is too fragile, the divine light is too strong, so reality explodes like a broken vessel, and then it's our duty, us as believers, to help God, as well as ourselves, in restoring the vessel, putting together all the fragments, and so on and so on. Uh, okay, let's drop this point that what this implies is that, uh, again, only through this broken vessel and in our efforts to reconstruct the vessel, God himself begins maybe to understand himself. So, the faith of ours, how we understand God, is the faith of God himself. We decide on the faith of God himself. And even a conservative Catholic, whom I like, like Paul Clotel, the famous French poet dramatist, he put it this surprisingly for a Catholic in a wonderful way. He says somewhere that the ultimate secret of Christianity is that God is helpless without us. That the ultimate message of Christianity is not this playing it safe because there is some old clerk up there who will help us. It's not. No, it's not you know God will somehow intervene and help, it's on the opposite. God needs our help. And this is then a wonderful reading of the sacrifice of Christ, which is not simply, okay, I sacrificed myself, so now you are safe because I paid the price, God will help you. No, it's that. Divine sacrifice means that God delivers the fate of his creation into our hands. We are condemned to freedom. God's sacrifice literally provides, grants our freedom. So, let's go back. Uh, the idea is then this one. How to read this, bringing the fragments of the vessel together? Here, Benjamin does something truly ingenious. First, I will try to describe it how Benjamin means it. Then I will move to a different artistic example, and finally we will come to the old clerk to God himself. First, here is a quote, because Benjamin uses this metaphor of broken vessel in his wonderful early essay, The Task of the Translator. Incidentally, sometimes I'm almost tempted to think, until sometimes tempted that it is as if Benjamin in his early years, in a slightly confused mystical way, said the crucial things, and then he was almost fighting himself to understand, as if he was a crazy god, but he felt himself. Okay, here is the quote, which is supposed to describe, with this metaphor of the broken vessel, the inner workings of the process of translation. Quote, Just as fragments of a vessel, in order to be articulated together, must follow one another in the smallest detail, but need not resemble one another. So, instead of making itself similar to the meaning of the original, the translation must rather lovingly and in detail, in its own language, form itself according to the way of signifying art des minors in German of the original. To make both, both means uh, original and the translation, 
recognizable as the broken parts of a greater language, just as fragments are the broken parts of a vessel. I hope you get the point why this is so wonderful, because the usual standard, it's very simple operation, the standard notion of translation is that you have the original which is the thing itself, and then you try creatively in another speech universe to come as close as possible to the original. This would be, to put it, roughly metaphoric dimension. Original is original, translation should, is a metaphor, never the original, but it should be as perfect as possible a metaphor. My God, uh, Benjamin says the exact opposite, that it's not metaphor but metonymy, that the relationship between original and translation, it's not between, in what sense it is a broken vessel, it's not that when you step into another language, the vessel is broken, the perfection of the original is lost, so you have to reconstruct the totality as much as possible. No, no, he says something different. He says that a good translation and the original must fit together as two fragments of a broken vessel, which means that the truly ingenious translation doesn't idealize the original, it treats the original itself as a fragment, and it tries to supplement it so that both original and translation will form, will come as close as possible to the reconstructed vessel. But as Benjamin is well aware, things get complicated here. Why? Because, you know, in a way, a good translation in trying to reconstruct the unbroken vessel breaks it. In what sense? Let's say we have an idea, work of art, idea in the simple sense in the original, take Dante Divina Commedia. When we translate it, if we translate it in Benjaminian way, the moment we start to translate it, the original is broken, because it appears only as a fragment. You see, the idea is this one. A true translation treats the original as a fragment and tries to translate not faithfully what the fragment says, but what precisely the fragment failed to grasp, so that both of them together would tell the story. Which is why I think even an even better example than this stupid uh, translation is something that I cannot resist. I am in love with it from when I was young, I remember. This retelling of the same story from different angles, or a different example, uh, just changing slightly the original story, you know, this idea of alternate possibilities, like, did you see the movie of Kislovsky, Blind Chance, and then the German worst film by Tom Dicker, uh, uh, run, Lola, run. The idea is you have a narrative, at a certain point the story takes three possible directions, and of course the point is what? That is prone to question, but which is the proper original? There is none. You get the meaning just by almost, I'm bluffing, but as what they call in quantum physics superposition. You know, all three echoing in each other. This is what I must say 
fascinates me so much. This is why, again, already when I was young, I love this modern staging of the operas, where you change a little bit the original story, and I don't like postmodern experiments as such. You just have to do something to provoke. No, but sometimes the right intervention is ingenious. For example, the jerk, our friend, who will come tomorrow morning. Will he give a talk here? Yes. He's not an idiot. Peter Sellers. He did, he did, you can find them on DVDs now. He did three great Mozart operas for DVD. He staged them. Uh, uh, Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Così uh, Fantune. Uh, I think the first two, so-so. But the true genius is Così Fantune. You know, you have two couples in all these masks and so on, and then you have just two other persons. Don Alfonso, a philosopher, who organizes this, and poor servant girl, uh, Despina, or who. And you know how she, Peter Sellers, reinterprets it, that the true traumatic love is between philosopher and the servant. And because the two of them cannot realize their love, they manipulate the others. It's a crazy idea, but it works so well. You know, that at a very naive level, all of a sudden you feel, my God, that's it. Now I get it. Or my example, which I mentioned, I would say some ten times in my books. Jean-Pierre Ponel, version of Tristan and Isolde, Wagner's opera. You know how the story officially ends. Tristan is dying. In the last minute, Isolde comes, they die together. It's more complex because the king also comes, but basically. You know how Ponel staged it? It's so efficient, much more tragic. That uh, in Act 2 they have, they make love, they are interrupted, and then Tristan is wounded, goes the third act, he waits for her. Uh, and no wonder that he dies, you know that. Tristan, Act 3, is maybe physically the most difficult role in the history of opera, Ludwig von Schor, Karlsfeld, or whatever, the first singer of Tristan <laughs> effectively died after the first performance <laughs> in Munich. <laughs> no? You know, like, Tristan, I mean, I, as a Wagnerian, got nervous, like, fuck off, drop that, you know. He thinks for about 40 minutes, no? And is supposed to be mortally wounded, you know. The only parallel that I know to this is, some friends in South Korea showed this to me. There is a North Korean opera, short, praising a guy who, in the war against Americans, bombs, uh, sacrifices himself, exposes himself, but kills 20 Americans. And the scene is like this. That's how it is described. The guy uh, has his legs and arms cut off, exploded. But with, while he's totally bleeding, he somehow with his head grabs the, the grenade, the bomb, and explodes it. And while telling this, he gives a long two-page speech on how he's glad to die for Kim Il-sung or whatever. Well, it's almost as good as Wagner, but to Wagner <laughs> So what I'm saying is this. What Ponel does, and it's so enlightened, is that in his version, there is no Isolde. For Isolde, this was a nice adventure, as long as it went. She stayed with her husband, no? 
So in Act 3, when Tristan is approaching death, he just imagines his all the coming. Imagining, and this is done in a wonderful, really, that cowboy structure in a subjective way. He doesn't see Isolde. He looks, let's say I am the guy in Tristan. Uh, I look at you, the public, in the opera, and behind me, with totally, with totally, with all the lights, as a kind of a magical apparition, Isolde stands and it's in your gaze that I see her. And then it's done so nicely because if you so the whole famous final song, Mildred Lies at the Death of Isolde, is Tristan's imagination to enable him to die in peace. And it's done so touchingly because when Isolde sings her last notes, you have then one second of color and then the last twenty seconds by orchestra. Ponel did this in such a wonderful cinematic day. When Isolde stops singing, you have one, two seconds of darkness, then light goes on, but everything is very crystal alone. You, you see what I'm aiming at? It changes the story, but it feels so absolutely right, the way, the way it is done. Okay, I will not bore you by the fact that uh, I think I already mentioned it every year, this is my mega narcissism. I'm not just a philosopher, I'm also a great artist, dramatist. I wrote finally, and it's already accepted by a Berlin theater, big one, and in Croatia, Zagreb, Slovenia, I prohibited it by country to do it, and now I'm sending it around, everybody wants to publish it already, my version, you know the story of Antigone, the same, three. The first one like Sophocles, the second one Antigone wins, she convinces Creon that Polynecus should be buried. The result is even worse. <laughs> the whole city is in fire. And then, in my version, uh, Antigone, you see Antigone wandering around. The whole city is in fire. And she says, her, you know her hit line of Antigone, I was created for love, not for war. And then Chorus sings back, basically, I translate it in a vulgar way, fuck off, stupid girl, you are the reason. You know, like with your stupid insistence that your brother should be buried. And then the third version is my favorite Stalinist one, probably you heard about it. While Creon and Antigone are fighting, the chorus steps over, arrests them both, and says, You are a threat to common good, this kind of Jacobinical Republic. You, you will both be liquidated. We establish ourselves as the tool of people's dictatorship, whatever. <laughs> and they are both killed. And at the end, I apply to Antigone that wonderful totalitarian poem, the examination questioning of the good person by Brecht, where, of course, the Antigone defends herself, no like. But I always keep my word. Chorus answered, but to whom did you give the word? And she said, I never looked for, at my interests. The chorus says, ah, at whose interest are you then looking like anything? Okay, after a couple of exchanges like this, the chorus answered, you convinced us, you are a very good person. So, we will kill you with a good sword and bury you in good earth. Mm -hmm. And then the chorus <laughs> celebrates democracy <laughs> But, so, now you will start, and there are other, incidentally, wonderful examples here. For example, it's not a great book, but I like it. I bought it at some discount. 
Such an the lost books of the Odyssey. It allegedly, allegedly, it brings out some forgotten versions. The idea is that Homer had a whole bunch of contradictory narratives, and he just put together the the uh, Odyssey. We know the story of Ulysses. So here, it's so wonderful, you know. It, Okay, it's one of those books where the idea is better than realization. But I like it because, like in one of the stories, it's so tragic but beautiful. Uh, Odysseus, Ulysses returns and sees that in his absence, Penelope did marry another guy who is quite a good king. They are happy and gently he withdraws. Like, why would I disturb this happiness? In the last, most ironic version, the very old Ulysses visits Troy and sees that there is the whole tourist industry there, you know. They are selling, they are selling Achilles, uh, Achilles spare or whatever, all of it. And then uh, he says, but fuck you, I am Ulysses, I was here. And they laugh at him, no, no, they already have their mythology. And also, uh, the story of Polyphemus. One I tried is wonderfully told from the standpoint of Polyphemus. He is a good guy, poor shepherd there, taking care of his sheep. Then this sleazy Greek comes stealing his food and so on. You know, it's uh, uh, so. Uh, you see my point. I think that this way of superimposing different versions. You see my point. It's wrong to ask, but which is the true one? No, the truth is. It, the truth of this uh, su uh, superposition itself, the truth is what echoes among the all. And now, I didn't forget about it, back to Christianity, isn't the ultimate example, I claim, of the broken vessel, the seven last words of Christ. You know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Truly, second, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Third one. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Five, I thirst. Six, it is finished. Seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Incidentally, this is a bad translation because yesterday I got it here. I read Agamben's book on, how do you pronounce the guy who condemned Pilate? Pilate and Jesus is a short book, it's not too good theoretically, but he points something which others have already observed I see that the word used here in these last words, into my hands, it's not committed, I deliver myself in strictly legal term of, you know, you deliver a prisoner to or, or you deliver like a gangster who wants to come clean, delivers himself to the police, and uh, Agamben shows how how this is a regular verb in the history of Christ. First, it is said that God delivers his son to humans. Then, then uh, Judas, God basically orders Judas to deliver him to the Romans. Then, Pilates delivers him to Jews. And it's a wonderful legal analysis of Agamben when he draws attention to the fact that there is no judgment. It's a very weird trial. 
At no point does Pilates say, okay, I condemn you to, to crucifixion. No, he just said, okay, back to Jews, I deliver him to you. And then washes his hands or whatever. And here I like the dogma, Luther, at his best. You know, there are now big debates. Christian tradition, from the very beginning, desperately tried to redeem Pilates. Why? It's clear why. The beginnings of anti-Semitism are there. To cleanse the Romans as much as possible, to put the blame on the Jews, you know. So, Pilates had to be paid some kind of a pure Roman who is just shocked at the barbarism of the Jews and so on. But that comes a wonderful problem. You know that Pilates has a wife who is anonymous in, in Gospels, but she is sometimes called Procla or Procula and sometimes Claudia, I think. The point is that just on the morning of the trial, she warns her husband, Pilates, not to have anything to do with trial of Christ because she had a terrible dream announcing to her that this is a great sacred man, don't mess with that. Now, some Orthodox Christians even had her as a saint, like she was already believing in Christ. Uh, you will not treat Martin Luther in this way. Luther claims, I love this logic, in a purely procedural way, her voice is the voice of the devil. Why? Because Christ wanted to be delivered and crucified to redeem us. She, on behalf of the devil, wanted to stop the process of crucifixion. Because, you know, if Pilates were not to deliver Christ to the Jews, there would be no crucifixion, we would not be uh, released, and so on and so on. So, okay, we have all this. Now, two mistakes you can make here. One version in those two horrible... Do you like gay cinema? Violent sadomaso gay cinema. If you do, uh, borrow Mel Gibson's passion. I think that's the only interest of the movie. You see a naked male body tortured in all the ways. It's ridiculous. And she, but also Zeffirelli, I hate Franco Zeffirelli, you know, the legendary target. You know that he is a neo-fascist, openly. He was some years ago uh, a member of the Italian parliament, of course, on the neo-fascist list. To make things worse, when they were celebrating, 95 or when, 100 years of the invention of cinema, cinema, you know, like Lumiere or whatever, uh, <laughs> Vatican did a surprisingly good thing, you can check it. They published the list of 100 best films of all time. And it's a surprisingly good list. <laughs> like under religious films. You don't find his Zeffirelli's bullshit, Jesus of Nazareth. But you, you do find Pasolini. I mean, it's incredibly good selection. You know what Zeffirelli did, as every good right-winger would have done? He made a public statement that obviously Vatican is already under the control of communism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what do both these movies, Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth and Passion, they do the most stupid thing imaginable. They try to combine all these seven words into one consistent narrative. Like, first Christ is desperate, oh Father, why have you abandoned me? Then after shouting this, I'm thirsty. He says, I'm thirsty. Then, 
krijg je een drink en zegt, oké, okay, ik finish, nou vader, hij de liefde niet gezegd door jou. Maar je ziet die other vulgarity of it too. Because it only works is precisely, you have all the versions superimposed, not put into a linear narrative. And uh, it's also wrong to pick out one which would have been the original. Yes, we can play the Freudian game of looking for something, but it should be something ultimately dramatic. One should maybe construct another thing which is really possible. And as if you, it, it explodes into six, seven, again, uh, 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 because it's this. So again, even, in, even God himself, Christ, functions as a broken vessel. And that's what Christianity knows. Here is the quote that I love from uh, my beloved Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who, with a clear reference to broken vessel, writes, wrote this quote. It is the instinct of Christianity to be glad that God has broken the universe into little pieces. All modern philosophies are chains which connect and back. Christianity is a sword which separates and sets free. No other philosophy makes God actually rejoice into the separation of the universe into living souls, and so on and so on. I think he is correct. I think this is the trick of Christianity. Like, imagine yourself abandoned by God, alone, desperate. How do you get from here to redemption? Not by, now I'm really, really attested, desperate. Oh, wait a minute, there is the light at the end of the tunnel, nonetheless God comes. No, the message of Christianity is much more radical. But again, let's say that you are totally desperate without any God guaranteeing. And then, you know what's the Christian answer? But this is deliverance. No reference to God to guide you means you are condemned to freedom. It's your responsibility. This means that God gave us freedom. You know, freedom is not cheap. You pay the price for it. You know. So again, uh, in this sense, I claim, the ultimate lesson of Christianity is that God himself is a broken vessel, a fragment. It's not just a gift. Again, in that, if anything, the faith of us the task of us humans is to, broke, to break him further, to make him a fragment, yes? No, uh, in this way, can we think of God as this uh, Spinozist structure? No. My, I may be wrong, but I am... Okay, I will tell you another thing. If you... I don't agree with the guy theoretically. He is not a Jew, and often the most violent Zionists are not Jews. Jean-Claude Milner, not Miller. But he's extremely intelligent guy, I read him. Uh, what he did is he wrote a book, uh, uh, Le Sage Trompeur, The Cheating Wise, wise Man. Wise guy, whatever. No, wise guy is ironic, not wise man, whatever. Where I, I like this. It appeals to all my Stalinist instincts. The thesis is, you know, that terrible Jewish court which excommunicated forever Spinoza, that they were right. And it, it demonstrates in such a convincing 
way, all the potential darkness of Spinoza's teaching. And I often was afraid, why did we notice this, that from Deleuze onwards, you have this absolute deification of Spinoza. Spinoza is one, one of the untouchables today, you know. And I remember when there was, some ten years ago, there was at UCLA a conference on Spinoza. All were there, from Valibar to Badiou, Judith Butler, and so on. And there was some guy there who fanatically defended Spinoza. And, of course, she couldn't ignore, I think it's towards the very end of Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, where Spinoza defines his notion of right is power, you have as many rights as you. As strong as you are, so you have the right to do what you are able to do. And Spinoza gives as an example women. He says, obviously, women have less rights because, as we can see, they are less strong and so on and so on. And this guy exploded. He wanted to be a good feminist, claiming, no, I, must, something must have been wrong. Was he drunk or whatever? Like, this is not Spinoza. It was so stupid. <laughs> this is Spinoza at its purest. Spinoza, even against all truly great democratic, call them ironically as these philosophers, directly advocated this platonic double truth theory. You know, Spinoza was, okay, the first enlightened guy, you know, he says this narrative form, God as an old father, prohibitions, he says, this is just naive way for ordinary people to get the message which can be formulated in non-ethical but clearly ontological terms. He even gives the example, like, you are prohibited to eat from the tree of knowledge. In reality, this means, imagine a scientist saying, apples are not good from the tree because they were not organically grown, whatever, you know. That is just that. But uh, at the same time, Spinoza always maintained that this is just for decriminalizing minority. That the majority needs narratives which they are too stupid uh, to get it. Also, it's wrong here, I think, Rancher Negri and already the lunch get a little bit confused. You know this uh, 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 imitatio, how do you call this in Spinoza, this one effect imitating the other. Another term. Sorry. The point is, they celebrate this as, you know, another metonymic causality. But are they crazy? For Spinoza, this is the ultimate horror. Uh, you know that to Spinoza, this idea came of affects imitating each other. When he saw the lynching of who were those two brothers, my God, his political allies. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when they were lynched, Spinoza was absolutely shocked. And for him, when he speaks about imitation of affects, it is precisely this furious crowd. It's not this Deleuzean beauty of affects, multitudes, uh, <laughs> whatever, in each other, no? So again, things get a, a little bit more uh, complicated here uh, with Spinoza. So I would say, no, I think... Uh, you find, yeah, yeah, a mega great philosopher, I agree, all of this. But no, I am on the Kant. Insofar as the great choice is Kant versus Spinoza, I am for Kant. And this is why I admire some of Althusser's followers. 
who began as fanatical anti-Hegelians and then broke down. For example, Pierre Bacheret, the one who co-wrote uh, Lire la Capital, Reading Capital, he did write 20, 30 years when I was young, a book, Hegel or Spinoza, Hegel or Spinoza, confronting the two, even arrogantly claiming not only was Spinoza better, in the sense that Hegel's critique of Spinoza totally misses the point, but that you already find in Spinoza in advance a critique of Hegel. <laughs> well, he was an honest guy. After that, he began to read Hegel and uh, <laughs> drop the whole line. Uh, Warren Monta, Spinozian, but California Spinozian. Told me that because he had contact in the last years with Louis Althusser, and he told me that with Althusser himself it was the same. This strict anti-Hegelian line of the early Althusser. Then he started to doubt, and the source of his doubt was actually one of the best ever written books on Hegel. It's so sad we cannot get the money. Me, Judith Butler, we try to push. Beautiful title, La Passion du Concept, The Patience of the Concept of the Notion. Gerard Lebrun is his name. Uh, reading this simply, Warren Montag told me, Althusser got it. I still love Spinoza, but I don't have not even an idea what Hegel really is about, and he was deeply intrigued, uh, deeply intrigued uh, by Hegel. So, okay. Let us go on, my God, a little bit now into what I wanted to do this. Uh, we will arrive in another way at this uh, superposition of multiple narratives or whatever you want. As I already mentioned when I spoke, you remember, on the first day I improvised a little bit in my first class about the stupid movie, but interesting rapture. How? The point is not only does God exist or not, but even if God doesn't exist, we should argue what, what kind of God doesn't exist. And uh, I think I already mentioned this example, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, incidentally his book is it's very cheap, short, it's wonderful reading, you should buy it. Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, like yesterday. Uh, it uh, was published lately at uh, Michigan State University Press in 2014, Economy and the Future. He's the best theoretician of catastrophes today, I think, to Pui. And again, as I already mentioned it, he developed the notion of counterfactuals in this sense. Take, I think I repeat now myself, take the statement, if Shakespeare did not write Hamlet, someone else did. This is a vulgar tautological truth, no? Hamlet exists, so someone had to write it. Okay. But if you say, if Shakespeare had not written Hamlet, someone else would have done it, this is a much stronger problematic statement. This means that you are a kind of historical determinist, and that you claim there was a kind of a historical necessity, need for a play like Hamlet, so if not Shakespeare, someone else would have done it. And, as I already also mentioned to you then, uh, I debated in New York last week with Stephen Kotkin, who can shout at you, he did at me today, so next window here, next building, 
biographer of the now writes three six volumes of new biography of Stalin. We focused on that in that New York Public Library debate, and that's the big problem of how to reach Stalinism. Can we really say if uh, there had been no Stalin, someone else would have done it? So, as if there was a general necessity of someone like Stalin, so if not Stalin, another guy would have taken played this role, or is it that Stalin's personality? His contingent personality played such a strong role that if not, if no Stalin, then at least it would have been much different. It's interesting how, although this guy cocked it, you see, this is why I think one should speak with intelligent conservatives. is uh, absolutely fanatically anti-communist, but he's, he has two small but nonetheless redeeming points. <laughs> One is that he accepts, rather surprisingly for an anti-communist, the second version. He thinks that without Stalin, probably a much more technocratic, almost pro-Gorbachev line would have prevailed. Because as we know, in last years, Lenin, not that he became a Democrat, but nonetheless he became extremely pragmatic. For example, in one of his last desperate letters, he said, just don't mention socialism. All we Bolsheviks can do now is to, even in this very Eurocentric way, is to bring in our primitive Russia a little bit of West European civilization and culture and so on. Which is why this may interest you. Uh, if you talk today, I, you know, there is this big debate, who is to be blamed for Stalinism? No, in this sense, then, is it East or West? Western Marxists like to play the stupid game, which is wrong, I think, of blame the Russian primitivism, you know, this stupid idea which is very racist. Of. Revolution just took place in, in the wrong place. It should have taken place in much more developed Germany, England, then you would have a wonderful democratic system, but Oriental despotism, all this bullshit, fuck them, they got what they wanted. But you know what's so interesting? If you talk today with Russian conservatives, they will give you, and with no less justification, the exactly opposite story. It is that, for them, Bolsheviks are together in the line with Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, brutal Western modernizers. For them, communism is precisely a radical break with traditional Russia, it's the imposition of a brutal Western program of modernization, and if anything, there are good elements for this. What Stalin tried with forced collectivization, etc., is precisely to do an extremely accelerated modernization. But what I, okay, I already developed this, I will not go into it. The idea is here the following one. Let's go step by step. That Dupuy's solution is, I'll really develop this here, I'll just recapitulate it, is that uh, this is a wrong, we cannot simply say either necessity or independent from that person. Yes, history is contingent, but once it happens, it, as it were, changes the past, not factually, but counterfactually, in the sense that it grounds its own necessity. To give you a very naive, I used it here many times already, example of love. You fall in love contingently, but once you are in, it appears to you as if you know all your life was a preparation 
for this moment and so on. Okay, the great example that, uh, 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 that Dupuy uses is, of course, uh, Julius Caesar, Rubicon. No, Caesar was free there. He may have not crossed the Rubicon, but the moment he did, it was his fate. So, again, the beauty is that something happens contingently, but once it happens, it becomes retroactively necessary. There is Dupuy quotes, I quote it three or four times in my book, a wonderful passage from some short political commentary some ten years ago of French elections when one of the candidates was Edouard Balladur, who was under Chirac, Richard II, I don't know, Prime Minister for some time, and Le Monde put it in this way. If these were still, this, how do you call them, pre-elections, uh, whatever, not yet pro, if at this pre-elections, whatever, Monsieur Balladur, if he will win, his victory will be necessary. It's a beautiful formulation, you know. Uh, again, the idea is that once you do something, but the moment you do it, it becomes necessary. Now I will give you, I think one I already did, two others I didn't, some other examples of this. The point is asymmetry. The choice is not, what Dupuy tries to argue against, he argues against this common sense notion that, you know, we are at a threshold, you either make this choice or that choice. No, the choice is always asymmetrical. In what sense? Again, first, the example I throw, just to remind you, just, I immediately, I, uh, I want to repeat it to make this point clear, this asymmetry. Let's say we are in the middle of a political, of a seduction process. One of the partners makes a pass, explicitly declaring his desire. This, as we all know, is always a risky point. You can be rejected even, basically, you risk being accused of harassment. Where is here the asymmetry? It's here, and I take this example from the police himself. Okay, sorry, I will not again be accused of whatever, but let's say, I am the guy, there is a woman, I tell her, I will not be vulgar, whatever. I want to do, you know what. Okay. If she says no, I can be accused of harassment. But now comes the test. So there is an obstacle. I have to overcome this. If she says yes, we cannot simply say that I successfully overcome the obstacle. No, the proper way to say that I established that there was no obstacle at all. So you see the paradox. If either there is if either we fail, the obstacle prevents us to succeed, or there is no obstacle at all. And I will give you another example, which is beautiful. John, John Gospel, otherwise I hate John. It's the first Gnostic, anti-Semitic uh, Gospel, but there is, you know, after Jesus made all that uh, shouting about how I came here not to judge you, but to save you, to redeem you. Then he gives, Michael Peter didn't notice this, he formulates exactly the same paradox where he says, uh, those who believe in me will not be judged because they are saved. Those who don't believe me 
will also not be grasped because they are already judged, condemned. You see the nice asymmetry. It's not I will judge you, believe or not, but either you are not judged, or not you will be judged, but you will just realize that you were fucked up from the beginning, already judged. And okay, we don't have time to go into the finesse of how, this is how Hegel argues, when you have the moment of tension, alienation, you don't overcome it, but you establish that you always already did overcome it. It's a much more uh, complex process. So, okay, not to uh, repeat old, uh, old examples, I will just, because at least now I come to my central point, uh, epistemologically, the paradox here is the following one. This is the point I want to make. Uh, uh, the paradox is that uh, it's not that uh, 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 sorry to make it clear. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, how does this concern this crucial the relationship between? I already said I'm just recapitulating truth and lie this topic of counterfactuality. The point is not that we can, that the path towards truth goes through a line, but you remember, I already, I think, listed here this example, for example, of, of the stupid movie, but it's not so stupid, maybe, Polanski, after the novel of Robert Harris uh, uh, about Tony Blair, basically, ghost, ghost writer, where we discover at the end, crazy thesis, that Tony Blair was, was, was planted by CIA from the very beginning to the Labour Party to have a Labour Prime Minister who will be pro-American. Now, as a reviewer of this novel, in Observer, I think, wrote years ago, it's wonderful. We absolutely, we know that this is not true. But, if it were to be true, it would explain perfectly everything. <laughs> you know, this part so. It's not true, but, but it explains everything. Like, my point here being, and that's the beauty of it, that this is the proper dialectics of truth and lie, that sometimes, precisely in a dialectical process, you need a lie, a counterfactual element, to see the truth. And you cannot say, okay, let's discard the lie, let's go directly at the truth. If you do this, you lose the truth itself. You have to add a lie, only viewed through a lie, the truth appears. So you can discard a lie, but after you lose it. And I claim in my historical pessimism that, so you not think you find some crazy Stalinist or whatever, that unfortunately the same goes for at least the way Marx and others imagined it, communism. It's, it is an instrument which enables us to see clearly what's wrong, alienated in bourgeois society, but it's basically a lie. A lie in the sense of an impossible ideological dream. I just was wondering why we're not using uh, interpolation and uneven development concepts and as much. I did, uh, why? But, you know, like, <laughs> like Obama in my favorite quote, 
Then I also find this. When there was a pressure a year or two ago on Obama, why don't you, United States, intervene in Syria? And he said something wonderful. Why Syria, why not Congo? Because effectively, if you look at it in the terms of really helping people, then screw Syria. The mega tragedy is Congo. But no, no one cares. You can't say screw al Husser, though. Sorry? You can't say screw al Husser. Not totally, <laughs> but I would have screwed him halfway. <laughs> to put it in your terms, you are guilty, not me. Not total penetration, but a little bit I would. And no, you will not get me. I always talk to Gary. No. I laugh at people who think they will talk up with me in vulgarity. Except in southern China, one who can talk. They have the most vulgar clothes there, I assume. Urine, sheep, sperms, and so on, they are stronger than me. But let's go on, when you said about Althusserst, uh, you know who was the guy in Ljubljana when we had the Marx conference? No, it was, it was there. Yes, he was one of those guys you brought, who developed a wonderful notion of uh, not failing, but how do you call this misinterpolation? that a wrong guy gets recognized. What? He was one of two, your... Yes, and I find this notion wonderful. You know, the problem is ideological interpolation. But I think all great things happen by misinterpolation. That not the one who is meant, like white people interpolated all free citizens, you know, human rights, you are free, they certainly didn't mean blacks in Haiti. But look, look, they said, oh, why not us? <laughs> you know, and this is, this is a very productive concept, but not just as a joke, but as of how, to, if I may use this naive, problematic term, how history progresses. You know that interpolation misfires in the sense that the wrong people uh, uh, recognize, recognize uh, themselves in it. So, again, uh, 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 back, to, uh, back to this, so, again, uh, all these examples of lie, you see, lie in the sense of, for example, you try, or another example, maybe I also mentioned it, I forgot, the first day, uh, political growth, growth under socialism, no? How there was, yes, I did mention this here, and just repeat it. How in all communist countries the myth was that there is some ultra secret department of secret police where they fabricate jokes. Not jokes against the West, but jokes against the existing, but the idea is a simple one. You give people jokes, something to laugh at, to, to release their energy, and they will protest less, and so on. So, although this is for theoretical reason wrong, jokes don't function in this way. Jokes are a very interesting phenomenon because you cannot imagine even, I'm too stupid in the terms of linguistic semantics to analyze it. Do you know someone? This mystery of, you cannot say, now I invented a joke. You always have to report it. You say, did you hear or whatever, you know. Jokes are always retold. It doesn't work to say, oh, now a joke came to be. <laughs> But uh, although, although this is false, this idea of a deep 
within the basement of a central committee or KGB, a Ludic Beach Public Exchange. Uh, and incidentally, that there, uh, uh, you can get even, that's what I like about Eastern Europe, like meta jokes, jokes about how jokes function. Like, you know, the East German leader, one of them, after Ulbricht, was Honecker, and the West German Chancellor was Willy Brandt. Okay, the joke is that they met, effectively, and with some uh, attempt of rapprochement between East and West Germany. And uh, Brandt asks Honecker, how do you jokes? I collect jokes about myself, they amuse me. You know what Honecker answer? No, I don't collect jokes, I collect people in prison who tell jokes about me. And so on. I mean, this were nice times. But what I want to say is that, you see, it's wrong. This idea of a secret unit producing jokes, but at the same time it makes clear the deeper truth that far from being simply subversive, jokes play a deeply constructive role, stabilizing role uh, for the for the regime. No? And again, I said we don't have time to go further here in this direction. But I want maybe to make a, a, ah, I will give you another example here. It's not a good novel, so I unfortunately don't advise you to read it. But the premise is interesting. I know we are going to the lowest of the lowest. You know who is Raymond Khoury, T-H-O-U-R-Y? He writes these religious thrillers, you know, this new genre about some manuscript emerges, everyone who gets hold of it because the, if this manuscript is rendered public, our whole Christian edifice collapses and so on. And then you have all these stupid stories like that, uh, I don't know, that Jesus was married, whatever you want. Okay, uh, this guy wrote a novel, modern bestseller, The Templar Salvation. Where? The story is much more interesting, almost realistic. The secret that threatens to destroy Christianity is not one of these Dan Brown myths, you know, whatever, or uh, uh, Jesus' own diary, or whatever, you know. Uh, although I would like, here I would see, to read his diary, like age nine, today I discovered I'm a god, or whatever. <laughs> but no, something else. Uh, here, the hypothesis of the novel is a quite realistic one. You know, when was it? 325 or 15 uh, Nicaea, how do you pronounce that, were under the orders of Constantine, they established the definitive version of, of uh, the Bible. No? And the idea is this one then. Of course, after they finished, because you know Constantine was a realist, no? He didn't care what's in it, he just so clearly, you need a Bible, something like You need the definitive text to, to, to prevent all those sectional, factional struggles going on. So the idea is this one, it's quite a nice one. Not, not mystical, not, nothing secret or seen. That they, of course, in order to make this judgment, they collected all possible apocryphal, at that point they didn't yet have a apocryphal, all possible texts, versions of all, all the 40, 50 Gospels, whatever, and then when they decided, this is it, Constantine ordered, okay, burn all the others, 
to prevent confusion. But then some monk, bishop, whatever, high guy, who was charged by Constantine to do this, didn't do it and hide it. And this is what they discover today. And it's beautiful, as if they were to discover what I was talking apropos Ulysses or whatever, you know, all the superimposed, uh, all other uh, versions, and so on and so on. I think it's a nice thing. So again, what is the status of this, of this counter counterfactuals? This is my and Lacan's position about God. God doesn't exist, but counterfactual it in exists. God is, in some stupid sense, very respectful, so it's not a good word. A lie, but a lie we need to see the truth, if you want. If you want it like this. Now, I will nonetheless read you parts of this quote, namely, a strange fact that in his seminar 20, encore, in English, I don't know what this is so patronizing, do the French guys think that you are so stupid? They had to change it into this stupid explanatory title, on feminine enjoyment and sexuality, whatever, you know, as if you are so stupid. You know? So, Lacan, there, uh, defines God in this way. God doesn't exist, but he inexist, divine. Like, that's the whole point, how something, even if it doesn't exist, it can have its efficiency, precisely as a fiction. And Lacan refers here to those paradoxes of stoic logic, you know, they were the first to elaborate this, that you can, you can draw, you cannot draw from true statements, premises, a false conclusion, of course, you can draw from true a true one, but you can sometimes draw from a false premise a true conclusion. And Lacan says that's the status of God. It doesn't matter. We can presume that it's false, but you can draw true conclusions about injustice, about our world, and so on and so on. So, uh, now comes, I didn't already mention it, I just want to read you uh, the quote. Now comes the beauty. Lacan defines exactly in this terms this so much maligned but also celebrated notion jouissance feminine, this feminine enjoyment beyond phallic enjoyment. What is so nice about this notion in Lacan is that first he doesn't say it exists, you know, some wrong readings substantialize it, in the sense that our phallic enjoyment is just mediated by language, alienated, but we mean really got it, real enjoyment, real, full, multi-orgasmic, whatever. No, for Lacan, in a very elegant way, she claims that if anything, it's feminine enjoyment, which is much more in language, in the sense that male enjoyment is basically phallic, pervert, or to put it simply, instrumental. And language is just a means of enjoyment. Only a woman can find full jouissance, to put it like this, in just talking about it. This is incidentally a nice moment. I hate the movie, it's too pretentious, but there is one nice scene, Bergman persona. Towards the beginning, uh, 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 Bibi Anderson, the one who speaks, 
tells an erotic adventure to the other, Liv Ullman, the youth one, and she just talks about it, and it's intensely erotic, there is no flashback and so on. You know, that would be, this is for Lacan feminine enjoyment. We men are too stupid. For us, you talk to the, sorry, I'm imitating vulgar, may shopping now. You talk to the beach to get her wet and then forget about talking bamba you. No, no, women can do it. Women can find enjoyment already in speaking about it, and so on and so on. I think that a nice example of this is even, uh, uh, although the film was too painful to watch for me, uh, 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 Breaking the Wave by Lars von Trier. It's not as painful as the one with Bjork uh, <laughs> dancing in the dark. I'm a sentimentalist here, I cannot watch the film, you know. But with pleasure I did watch, what's that one with the Hildman Dogby? I'm a big chauvinist, but in a feminist sense now. Isn't it nice how she takes revenge at the end, you know? Sorry, I'm a big guy, I like that. Okay, but let me go back to this point. So, uh, uh, in Breaking the Way, you remember when the guy, her fiancé of, of Emily Watson wrote, gets crippled, the arrangement is, she, he asks her to fuck around, so that then she is telling him her adventures, and she can masturbate, or she masturbates him, doesn't matter. But you see, this is the difference. It's clear that her enjoyment is not effectively fucking the man. She, she, she fucks the man in a way just to be able to talk about it. The true, this is the true feminine enjoyment. Well, he is a more vulgar uh, guy, so on and so on. So you see, the beauty is this one, that something as central as feminine enjoyment for Lacan, its, it's uh, existence can be purely counterfactual, but nonetheless it functions. You know, it's like, you know, all those stupid well-known jokes, which I love, you know, like, uh, you know, when you ask, but this is Freud quotes, this one, paradoxes of existence, like, I said, is this the room where Napoleon slept, blah, blah. Yes, this is the room, although Napoleon never slept here, you know, like that. Something has certain properties, although it doesn't exist, it didn't uh, really happen. Maybe we can even read in this way the well-known old Jewish proverb, which I quote often proverb, saying, I love it. You know, the stupid young boy asks a uh, rabbi who tells him a beautiful thing, is this true? Did it really happen? You know what the rabbi answers, you must know. Probably it didn't happen, but it's true. No? I mean, so again, just a couple of passages from Ancor. It is the enjoyment, feminine enjoyment, which is not required or shouldn't come. It's conditional. Enjoyment that, how are we going to express what is not? If, that, if there were an enjoyment other than valid, if there were another one, it would not be required. The first part, if there were another one, designates something false. There is no other enjoyment than valid enjoyment. You know, so that's his point. Again, it's very complex, I'm not going to it now. But the, the point is simply that something exerts its efficiency 
precisely by way of uh, existing only counterfactually. And this brings us to many uh, other interesting, uh, interesting uh, uh, conclusions, like, uh, uh, for example, uh, I don't have time to go into it now, like uh, a thought developed somewhere by Adam Phillips, the British psychoanalyst, who is for me a little bit too new age, like a wise guy, but he developed very nicely in his late interview with uh, Paul Folgengraber this idea that, uh, that uh, our life is not just what happens to us, but all the potentials what may have happened. Like, let's say we, me and you, experience exactly the same things, but you have a broader choice of what may have happened to you. And that's why your experience is much in other words, the whole point is this one, and I think this is maybe the best definition of virtuality. Sorry, I don't want to go on, uh, but blah blah. Oh, it's perfect. Okay, namely that, as Deleuze puts it nicely, virtuality is not simply possibility. Virtuality is a possibility which, as such, although it didn't happen, exerts an efficiency. It's, as puts it, the actuality of a possibility. Sometimes, what you didn't do can totally screw up your life. Let me take, take a ridiculously simple example, but to get a point. I am witnessing a scene where a young boy, baby, is drowning. And I am a shitty coward, I run away. But it's possible, or imagine even a stronger case, that then this trauma haunts me you know, nothing happened. I just didn't do something. But this can, till the end, uh, not uh, mark my life in the sense that to understand what I actually did. Let's say maybe later I become, how do you call uh, I become a, a nurse or how do you call the idiots who go to people with ambulance drivers, whatever. No, sorry. What I want to say is that you see, you see, to understand why I become, let's say, a doctor, charity worker, it can be only explained by a reference to what I didn't do. That's the deeply Hegelian point. No, what I didn't do constitutes. You can only understand what I did through a detour to what I didn't. Yes? Your no, last <coughs> no, I just I was commented. Destructive entitlement is such a concept. In Which one? Destructive entitlement is such a concept. Sorry. It's a concept in existential. It's a concept in existential family uh, therapy by Ivan Bosromenyanagi, which uh, talks about uh, this transgenerational transmission of trauma and how following generations are paying the debt of the traumatic uh, kernel of their previous generations. That was not. This is an interesting yeah. topic. I don't you have know, time. Yeah, it's already half past. We're going to it now. But in my, this is the best part of my otherwise slightly confused book. Did somebody say totalitarianism? Where I developed, and I think in a quite nice way, I found three examples of how, in, of course, Western mythology, for a beautiful woman, you need three generations. You need grandparents with some sin, 
they did something wrong, then you need a crippled, failed father, and the third generation is a beautiful woman. You know, that is much like Oedipus. Parents did something wrong, Oedipus crippled, and then third generation Antigone. And I found, I was shocked, exactly the same structure is that beautiful French, a little bit kitschy, but nice uh, novel. It was made into a movie, which was a moderate hit, uh, 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 Jean de Florette and Manon de Source. French passions in the countryside, in the south. But, okay, uh, 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 Manon de Source is a beautiful girl in the movie version, played by Emmanuel Gerard, and you are allowed to dream about her. I was told this by French Maoists because I love this Marxist terror there. You are allowed in these leftist circles to dream about uh, sexually women or, or men, but, and I love this, but you know, you should check it out. Is, are these the good guys about whom you are allowed politically correct to dream? And I was told that, that uh, who is the one who plays my God in, in Juliette Binoche and Emmanuel B Behar are okay to have dirty dreams because they are very much on the left, they are also anti-racist demonstrations. No. Uh, in, among actors, it's interesting, the leftist myth in England is that the Irish guys are okay if you are a lady to dream about. Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, okay. They are Irish, oppressed, good, and so on, you know. Like, it's interesting, even McGregor was good years ago when he began with that training, transport and so on, but when the, he became a Jedi and moved into, I uh, uh, don't dream about him too much. <laughs> but, so, uh, again, uh, uh, of course, this is not reality, but it's a myth about, and I agree with you, even Lacan has somewhere precisely this theory that even one death is not enough. For example, Lacan says this not about women, but about psychotic. He says somewhere that to, to produce a really good psychotic, you need at least two generations. Two generations should be screwed up in a normal, hysterical way, then finally, if you work really hard, you get a psychotic grandson or whatever. That's the okay, uh, on Monday, we will go into more difficult theology again next week, and then uh, Wednesday, it's uh, Sydney Opera. Did I ask you to say yes or no? No. Thank you very much. Thank you.